0: A woohooer, a hand-clapper, a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 166. This is our second listener question episode of the year. Once again, this will not finish off the listener question queue or even get through all of the excellent questions that were sent in earlier this year. That means that there will be yet another questions episode later in 2018. So if you have sent in a question, but it's still not in this episode, it's coming. I promise I'm getting there. I just ended up being way too long-winded <laughs> with a lot of these answers, so some stuff got pushed to later. Also, if you haven't sent in a question, please do. You can hit me up at twitter.com slash historyofthegreatwar, facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar, or good old-fashioned email at historyofthegreatwar@outlook.com. at outlook.com. Finally, for those who want to know more about the future plans of this podcast, stick around after the final questions, and I'll talk about it. Let's jump right in with the first question from listener Andrew. Quote, my question has to do with the rapid rate of technological advance and how quickly even basic tactics had to change to confront the situation. This is what makes me so interested in the war. Is there any future plans on the discussion of these types of topics? I'm going to start off with an answer with a bit of a disclaimer. Then I'm really going to talk about technology and then a bit about future plans for this stuff. Technology, and especially technological innovation, did have an impact on the war. That's undeniable. However, the forward march of technological progress was in some ways less impactful than is sometimes imagined. It's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking that technology drove the course of the war, when in fact it was the war that drove technological change. On top of this, many of the most critical advancements during the war were in simply figuring out better ways of doing things that already was being done. A really good example of this is in the artillery. Before the war, in the early years, to get the artillery to hit specific targets, the old technique of ranging was used. Essentially, you'd put a gun in position and spend some time figuring out the exact settings you need to hit the target by firing it at that target and seeing what happened. Pretty simple. However, the need for surprise in bombardments meant that this was not desirable, and so solutions had to be found. On the German side, this meant a complex series of rangings for every gun behind the front, more focused on muzzle velocity and math than anything else. I've often found it difficult to find a way to properly present these types of innovations because they often happen slowly over time instead of as like a big jump that makes them stand out. This is something I'm hoping to change in the future and to that end I'm working on some episodes that focus strictly on how some things changed over the course of the war like how artillery hits targets or the sight and sound ranging techniques that we talked about during the Vimy episodes. It's been hard to sort of present this information because we've been very focused on the narrative uh, so far in the podcast. Before I end this answer, though, I'm going to talk about three things that I've been wanting to discuss for a while, but have not found a great place to insert them in the episodes. These three topics are three pieces of very basic technology. Helmets, radios, and grenades. Each of these are just small pieces of fighting in the war, but each of them would make either their first appearance in major conflict, or would be reimagined in a way that would set the stage for the next 100 years of military conflict. Let's start with the helmet. For people in the post-World War II generations, it's almost weird to think about the fact that the armies went to war in 1914 without helmets. Each country had their own type of head covering, generally some type of hat or cap, But they provided basically no protection on the battlefield. They were basically just there to block the sun. This made soldiers very vulnerable to shell fire and shrapnel, especially in places like Italy, where they were fighting in Rocky Mountains. This situation would continue for all of the fighting in 1914 and even into 1915, with the French being the first to start introducing helmets to most of their soldiers about halfway through 1915. The British helmet would come later, and probably the most iconic helmet of the war, which would become synonymous with the German military for the next forty years, the Stahlhelm, would not appear until Verdun. This means that for a third of the war, and at battles like the Marne and Mons and Gallipoli, and every other battle in the early period, nobody had protective helmets. By 1916, helmets would be widely adopted, and much like tanks and planes, helmets would become ubiquitous on the battlefield. And that change would begin in the trenches of 1915. The First World War would see radio occupy a very important role in the conflict. Put it simply, there were a lot of radio signals sent during the war. Some of them were on the continental wide scale. And the very presence of these radio signals would change the course of the first few years of the war. In 1914 the Germans had several colonial possessions throughout the world and lacking a navy to rival the Royal Navy and out of fear that their telegraph wires might be interdicted by the British, which by the way they were, they wanted to find a way to communicate with their colonies in Africa and Asia in the event of war. To do this they began using radio towers. The most important reason for these radio towers was for Germany's commerce raiding strategy, where surface ships all over the world would hopefully be raiding enemy commerce to interrupt supplies coming into Europe. To make this strategy a reality, there had to be a way for the ships, the German government, and the German colonies to all communicate and coordinate things like coal deliveries, which were critical to keeping ships at sea. High power radio towers would make this a reality. The Germans were not special in their use of this high-power radio. For example, the French had one that would allow them to communicate with Russia, and the United States had several on the East Coast that could communicate with other towers in Europe. There were also several in Germany that could communicate with others in East and West Africa, and from there to territories in the Pacific. There were also radio towers in South America that would be used by the Germans. When the war started, the British and their allies began hunting these towers down. Troops from Australia and New Zealand hit the Pacific Islands, taking out German possessions in places like Samoa to deny its use as a radio relay and resupply port. Then invasions were launched into Germany's African colonies, with one of the goals being to shut down the ability of the Germans to use those areas to communicate with the rest of the world. There were other areas that they could not just invade, but they used intimidation of South American countries to get them to stop allowing German traffic, and they sort of did the same thing with the Americans. All of these efforts, when combined with cutting all of Germany's undersea communication cables, completely isolated Germany from the rest of the world. This hindered some of their military plans, but it also allowed the Entente to control the message on the war, and it made sure that the world was hearing the Entente side of the story, and not Germany's. So that's radio on a macro level, but it would also have effects on a micro level as well. One area where radios would impact the war on a smaller level would be at sea. Weight and size were not a problem on everything larger than a destroyer, and so almost all all capital ships were equipped with radios. This allowed ships to communicate and work together better than ever before, and even outside of visual range, but it also brought some problems that were difficult to solve. The first was the small problem of a radio broadcast being roughly equivalent to announcing to the world that you were in the area. The second was one of communication security. Encryption had been practiced in various forms since the ancient world, but never before had the enemy had such easy access to everything that was said, like when using radio. This encryption was critically important, and it failed a lot. The most famous example of this would be the Zimmerman telegram and the work done by the British, but it would happen all the time. The Germans constantly knew what the Russians were saying. The French often knew what the Germans were saying. Code-breaking was everywhere. This is part of why, when I think of radio during the war, I think of a technology that nations around the world have some level of mastery with, but they had no experience using it in a war and all the problems that came along with it, or all the benefits that it provided. This made them more likely to fall into those problems, like maintaining security, and less likely to fully take advantage of its utility in a military context. Another item that saw a tremendous amount of evolution during the war was the grenade. Grenades had existed since basically the introduction of gunpowder, but they generally looked quite different, and they were not in widespread use when the war started. This would all change with the introduction of the German stick grenade and the British Mills bomb. The grenade's ability to secure sections of trenches and dugouts was perfect to counter how defenses had been built up over time. I feel like the German stick grenade is probably the second most recognizable piece of German equipment from the war, or the Second World War as well, probably behind only the distinctive German helmet design. The stick grenade was designed with a long handle because it was easier for the German soldiers to throw, and by 1916 soldiers were going forward armed with almost nothing but sacks of grenades. There's a lot of pictures of German soldiers with essentially their entire belt from front to back full of grenades, and this was not an exception. Rarely was a weapon fit so perfectly to the battlefield that the Germans were experiencing. On the other side of the front was the British Mills Bomb. The Mills Bomb is maybe not quite as iconic, but it would be incredibly long-lived. It would first see action in 1915, and it would be the primary grenade of the British Army with a few small modifications, all the way up to 1972. The makeup of the Mills bombs would probably look very familiar to Americans as well since it closely resembles the classic World War II era pineapple grenade used by the American Army. Basically, the Mills Bomb was a cast iron shell that was designed to be obliterated into a whole bunch of shrapnel when an explosive inside went off. This explosive was activated by pulling the safety pin and letting the lever pop off. The bomb weighed a bit over a pound and a half, or around 750 grams, which is roughly similar to like a large can of soup, which is far heavier than I thought it would be. That thing's pretty dense. The pineapple shape with the ridged cast iron shell would go on to influence countless other grenades in countless other countries, although later it would be found that a smooth shell provided more consistent explosive patterns, uh, but still, it was pretty good for the time. So that's all for technology for now. Three small bits and then some promises of future content. Also, if you're interested, there are Patreon episodes that focus some on the broad evolution of technology and tactics during the war, especially around offensive techniques, uh, artillery, and then cavalry. Our next few questions come from listener John, who provided some relatively rapid-fire questions. The first one is how useful were the armies of Serbia, Albania, Montenegro, and Belgium after they were occupied. The Balkan states would take part in the fighting on the Salonika and Macedonian front after the fall of Serbia. The Serbians would play a large role in this fighting, with Serbian divisions making up about a quarter of all of the troops in the area. They would be part of the most diverse army during the war, with French, British, Greek, and Serbian troops all fighting together. Late in 1918, they would advance north, pushing back Bulgarian and German troops. The Belgian presence on the Western Front would be even more important. After the German invasion of Belgium, the Belgian army fell back to the west and would take up their positions in the far north of the Western Front. For the next four years, they would not participate in any offensive actions, but would play a critical role in holding the front with the British and French. They were not the largest army, but especially during 1915, they would have been roughly equal to the British forces on the continent before the BEF greatly expanded, which meant they were a critical piece of the alliance. John's next question is, did the Greek army see combat in World War I? As I just mentioned, the Greek army was present on the Macedonian front after the Greeks entered the war, and they would take part in the final offensives of 1918. However, their most important role would actually be after the war, which is something we will discuss in great detail here in a few months. To sum most of it up, basically when the war ended, they were seen as one of the strongest armies in the eastern Mediterranean, since they had not been hit hard by the war. When this was coupled with their willingness to work with the British and French, it meant that the Entente saw the Greeks as a useful tool to try to use when trying to shape and control the post-World War Middle East. That story goes on some lengthy twists and turns, but it ends up with the Greek army marching into Anatolia in 1919, resulting in the Greco-Turkish War, a conflict that would not go well for the Greeks. You can definitely expect more discussion of Greece in the future. Currently, we have just not really arrived at the point where they have their greatest impact. The third question is, were Italian troops deployed outside of Italy during World War I? Now, I don't believe the Italian troops were deployed outside of the Italian peninsula during the typical confines of the war. Before the armistice, their allies were far more concerned with sending reinforcements to Italy instead of getting reinforcements from Italy. However, after the war, things would change, and the Italians would send their armies outside of Italy on excursions into Asia Minor and into the Balkans. Both of these regions were areas promised to them in the Treaty of London with the British, and they were attempting to make good on those promises which the British were trying to back out of. Much like the Greek, these actions will definitely be discussed in the coming months because they tie intricately into the story of Versailles. John's fourth question, were there any Russian troops on the Western Front, and were there any French or British troops on the Eastern Front? Both of these things definitely happened. The French and British saw the Russians as a great manpower reserve, and in 1917 there were Russian formations on the Western Front and under the command of the French army. They were not particularly effective, and it really came at a bad time, given the revolutions that would result in the Russian troops just kind of being stranded in Western Europe, but they were there. French and British forces also made a small appearance in the east, with some specialty units from the two armies being sent to assist the Russians. An example of this would be some armored car units which were sent uh, to the east early in the war due to the fact that they could have far more effect in that theater of combat. In all of these cases, the forces sent were far more symbolic than actually impactful, with both fronts having their own problems which prevented them from sending enough troops to really make a difference. Much like in World War II, the amount of supplies sent to the Russians by the British, especially uh, along with the French and Americans, really, were very important to keeping the Eastern Front going as long as it did, and so that was far more impactful than any manpower that was sent east. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups... So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Our next question comes from Noah of the Excellent History of the Vikings podcast. He would ask... Conflict on the Eastern Front during the Great War is often not talked about. It's often greatly overshadowed by the horrific trench warfare that occurred on the Western Front. What were the fighting conditions like on the Eastern Front? Was there much trench warfare, or was that a Western Front thing? Was the Russian army underdeveloped? Was their use of machine guns, cavalry, etc. also underdeveloped? The best way to think about the Eastern Front during the war is that it was the Western Front, or what it would look like with much smaller troop densities. This meant that the fighting looked quite similar, actually. There were men in trenches on both sides, there were dugouts and machine guns, a good amount of artillery, everything that is classically associated with the Western Front. The fighting was also quite static most of the time, although there were, of course, some huge swings in territory in various occasions. If you look at a place like the southern end of the front, here the Austrians and Germans developed first and second line defenses, with trenches and dugouts and machine gun nests, But there was just less of everything given the vast distances that had to be covered. There were also fewer situations like you see at some place like Ypres, where fighting would happen for the entire war, so the land on the eastern front does not get obliterated in the same way. Cavalry would make an appearance and play a much larger role in the east, but here they would have almost the opposite problem as in the west. In the west, the core problem for the cavalry was that there was a lack of room to maneuver, and the troop densities were just insane. In the East, it was more about the limited range of of cavalry and their limited numbers, not allowing them to make a decisive difference. I know I keep harping on the distances, but it's a really important factor here. When considering the Western Front, probably 90% of the fighting happened between Ypres and Verdun, which is about 200 miles or so as the crow flies. Meanwhile, in the east, there's a front upon where you can attack that's probably three times that or larger. There's also not as many geographical constraints on this fighting. There were large areas like the Pripyat Marshes, which sort of forced fighting around them. But there is so much between the Carpathians and Moscow. Pretty much rivers is all that can really stop armies. Other than that, it's just a lot of territory. As for an evaluation of the Russian army, mostly an opinion question, but I'll allow it. I think if you take the top two armies out of the conversation, those being the French and German armies in 1914, you end up with a lot of nations with militaries that have problems. Big, serious problems. Italy, Russia, Austria, Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, the Balkan states, a lot of them. uh, They have armies that were forced to grow to match the rising populations and the changes in warfare, but their economy was not growing at a similar rate. This meant that even though they were spending just as much as the French and Germans, when you look at a defensive spending as part of GDP, or percentage of of GDP, it's just not as much money. They tried to make up the shortfall just in raw numbers, which the Russians definitely had an advantage in, but they ended up with an army that was poorly equipped when it came to machine guns, artillery, or just technology in general. Then there was also the Russian geography, which just was sort of a double-edged sword. Multiple times throughout history, the Russian geography has proved to be its greatest defensive strength, but it also makes it incredibly difficult to defend on the frontiers due to how far it was away from the industrial areas. These distances also made it difficult for the Russians to properly run railway development uh, before the war, since it made it so much more expensive. From a leadership perspective, it was also not great, especially in the early years of the war, so no real excuses for them there. What would actually prove to be Russia's biggest problem was not necessarily in their military, though, but instead in their society as a whole. The divisions throughout Russia caused by choices made by the Tsarist regime meant that as the strain of the war increased, just like it did in all the other countries, there was just not enough holding the country together, which just sent it into its revolution cycles of 1917. The next question, or I guess, questions comes from listeners Spencer and John, who had those questions earlier, because they ask pretty similar questions that I'm grouping together here. Spencer would ask, how did the Spanish manage to stay out of the war? Uh, I haven't heard them mentioned once. And John asks, the Germans tried to bring Mexico into the war versus the United States. Why did they not try to bring Spain in on their side as well? This is a great question. And I actually did a dive into why the Spanish remained neutral for a Patreon-exclusive episode, But here's a pretty good summary. Spain stayed out of the war for three primary reasons. They were not a strong enough country, either militarily or economically, they were deeply divided as a society about what to do, and nobody really wanted them. Let's start with the state of the country in 1914. At that point in history, Spain was in a rough spot. Over the previous decades, and even really centuries, the Spanish Empire had been in decline, with the last great losses coming during the Spanish-American War when they lost control of most of what was left of their overseas empire. Then in the early years of the century, there were the two Moroccan crises, which pretty much proved that Spain was a second-class nation and was not one of the big boys anymore. The country was also not very strong economically, with wide swaths of the country living in poverty, which made it difficult to raise enough money to support a large modern army. The army that it did have was very top-heavy, with an officer class which was far too large, but at the same time, one that had a lot of political influence, which meant that they were not about to be downsized, of course not. Because of the amount of money going to this group of leaders, it was difficult to find money to spend in other areas like training and equipment. When the war started, the economic side of the problem actually improved, at least early on. This was a common trend among European neutrals, as they found that the warring nations, and especially the Entente, basically needed everything. And so all the countries not involved in the war were able to take advantage of this to increase exports. Unfortunately, this positive trend would not last, and it would be followed by crippling levels of inflation later in the war, which would greatly destabilize not just the Spanish economy, but the country as a whole. The second primary reason that they did not enter the war was simply the fact that the country was quite divided on who they supported. Most of the divisions came between the citizens that lived in the cities and those in the countryside, with an added rift between the low and high economic zones. These differences would be exacerbated during the war due to the stress that the whole situation put on the rural members of Spanish society. Before the war, a big release valve for rural citizens, especially those coming into adulthood, was migration outside the country, with a large percentage moving to North America. However, when the war started, most of this immigration was stopped due to the war, mainly due to shipping shortages and the U-boat threat. This then resulted in these young people piling into the cities searching for jobs, which resulted in overcrowding. These migrants were then able to be organized along with the factory workers, and these groups sort of split based on ideology. So you would have the anarchists, the socialists, the monarchists all other kinds of ists, and all of them would have different thoughts on the war. Some were Francophiles and wanted to join the Allies, others were Germanophiles and they wanted to join join the German side. But then the big mass in the middle just did not want to get into the war at all. No matter which side they were on, each generally would find newspapers sympathetic to their mindset, with both Germany and France using money to influence specific newspapers so that there was always positive coverage of each country, if you read the right paper. The final reason that the Spanish did not join in the war was due to the fact that nobody really wanted them, or needed them, on their side. The British and French had nothing to gain by bringing in Spain. Their military was too weak, and unlike a country like Romania or Italy, they offered little in terms of geographical positioning. For the Germans, they did not really have anything to offer the Spanish, and so they always took the position of just trying to keep the country out of the war. The closest that the country came to entering the conflict was during the height of unrestricted U-boat campaigns in 1917. During that time, several Spanish ships were sent to the bottom, and many Spanish citizens were killed. But about as close as they came to the war was a strongly worded letter to the Germans. I think on the whole, Spain was one of the great victims of the war. They didn't join in the war. They never really came super close. But the stresses put on society due to economic disruption set it up for the civil war that would happen just a few years after the First World War was over. Our final question today comes from listener Chris, who asks, How much of the war occurred in the Pacific or Indian Ocean? Maybe some discussion about how the Japanese benefited. Were any U.S. Navy ships damaged in combat during the war? There were definitely actions in the Pacific and Indian Oceans early in the war. Pretty much the entirety of these actions revolved around either German colonies or German commerce raiders. We'll start with the colonies. When the war started, the Germans did not have a large colonial empire, but they did have several possessions around the world, including East and West Africa, German Samoa, and Tsingtao in China. The East African campaign would go on for the entire war with the German and native troops able to evade the British for the entire length of the conflict, although only due to some British failures and a complete and utter disregard for how many natives were killed due to the German actions, and it was a lot. German Samoa and other small German islands in the Pacific were all captured early in the war by British and Commonwealth troops. This was considered critical to the effort due to the possibility of these islands being used for communication purposes, both for radio and undersea cables, and they were also able to be used as stopover points for German commerce raiders. There was no serious resistance when Australian, New Zealand, or Japanese troops arrived to take over these islands. There was, however, resistance when the Japanese tried to take the Chinese port of Tsingtao from the Germans. We talked about this action when we discussed Admiral Spee's great adventure in earlier episodes of the podcast, and he would lead his ships all the way from China to the east side of South America, where they would run into the British and be sunk near the Falkland Islands. One ship, and the most famous, would actually split off from Spee on his way across the Pacific, and would instead head for the Indian Ocean. The Emden was a fast and light cruiser, and after it arrived in the Indian Ocean, it would become probably the most famous surface raider of the war. Over the next two months, the Emden would capture over 25 ships, and during that time, it was also a media sensation, with any report of the ship making headlines all over the world. Eventually, the Emden's luck would run out, and at the Cocos Islands, the Emden would get into a fight with a much larger Australian cruiser, which it would lose, and its raiding days would be over. The Emden is something that probably deserves its own episode, but before we talk about that, let's talk about Chris's other question, about U.S. naval casualties, The total of both sunk and damaged ships for the United States was under 100, but almost all of these were smaller than destroyers, with several things like transports, patrol boats, and minesweepers. There were a few capital ships that were severely damaged, these were all by mines, with the USS Minnesota a battleship being the largest of these capital ships when it hit a mine. The ship was able to be towed back to port and repaired though so it wasn't actually lost. Of the 100 damaged ships, only 35 of them would be actually sunk. And again, these were almost all small ships. The only one that was pretty large was the USS San Diego. These numbers are pretty small, mostly due to the fact that the American presence came quite late in the war, far after the large surface actions and the U-boats were generally far more interested in hitting slow-moving merchant ships than the uh, U.S. naval ships. As for the final part of Chris's question in terms of what the Japanese gained from the war, that's a topic I'm going to have to hold off on for just a moment. It actually turns into a very large topic of conversation and is currently slated to get its very own episode during our discussions of Versailles. So you can expect a lot of discussion about what the Japanese hoped to gain from the war, what they actually did, and how the difference between those two would go on to influence future events in the Far East. So that's all of the questions for this episode, but since it's pretty close to the fourth anniversary of the show, I thought it'd be a good time to talk about the future. Let me start with what the plan was, and what it's been pretty much this whole time. When I started the podcast, and after I got past the point where people were actually listening, I sort of became fixated on releasing the last episode on November 11th, 2018. Just the symmetry of starting on the centenary of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and then ending on the day that the armistice was signed just seemed too perfect of an opportunity to pass up. However, as with so many other things over the last few years, I found out while researching for this year's episodes that I had a lot more to say than would fit in that time frame. What originally started as four, maybe five episodes on Versailles has turned into probably about 15, which already pushes the end well into next year. Then something else happened. About six months ago, I realized something really important. The story of the First World War does not end on November 11th, 1918, or even when the Treaty of Versailles was signed. That was just the beginning of a set of events that I like to call aftershocks that would occur all over the world. Some events were directly caused by the war in Versailles, like the complete reworking of Eastern Europe or the redrawing of the Middle East. There were also events that would just sort of spool off of these, like the Polish-Soviet War, the Greco-Turkish War, the Ruhr Crisis, the Arab Revolts, uh, the list could go on and on. Some of them probably would have occurred without the war, like the Russian Revolution or the Irish Civil War, But all of them were shaped by the world around them, and that world around them, especially in Western Europe, was completely reshaped by four years of conflict. These are stories that are often neglected, but that need to be told, so that's the plan. After Versailles, and after about a month off, whenever that is, I'm going to dive into all of these aftershocks. I'm not sure in what order or what precisely we will cover, but I'm currently eyeing the year 1923 as a pretty good cutoff uh, for most of these stories. That does not mean that the podcast is going to last another five years. This won't be a yearly thing like it has been up to this point. Instead, I estimate it'll probably push us out another year or so, maybe a year and a half. At that point, it will be time to once again reevaluate the situation. If things are still going well, I'll probably not continue into the 20s and 30s because I feel like those eras are not the end of our stories but really the beginning of the next big story. The most likely option would be to go back in time and build up the foundation of the war a bit better. There are a whole bunch of events uh, between especially the uh, German unification-ish in 1866 and 1914 that are critical to understanding the war. Conflicts like the Franco-Prussian, Russo-Japanese, and others, or political events like the Moroccan Crisis or the Naval Arms Race. All of them have been barely mentioned by me, especially during those first episodes of the show, which, let's be honest here, were really bad. I have no plans to move on to a World War II podcast in the near future. I'm not saying that it never happens, but it certainly won't be in the near future. There are a lot of other World War II podcasts out there, and also that story is incredibly daunting and not something I would want to commit myself to right now. My guess is that just the Russian front from 44 to 45 would take about the same amount of episodes as it's taken us to get from Sarajevo to Versailles, and that's just one piece of that war. So there we are, future plans, plans for the future. As always, I love to hear from listeners what you like, what you want to hear more of, questions you may have, really anything. So hit me up on twitter.com slash historygreatwar, facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar, or History of the Great War at outlook.com. I hope you will join me once again next episode, as the war reaches its climax, as the Allies once again launch some offensives on the Western Front, only this time, they'll actually work.